Joshua chapter 5, we're reading the first 12 verses of the chapter. When the bulletin was prepared last Wednesday, I intended to consider verses 10 through 12 of chapter 5 separately. A sermon on baptism, a sermon on the Lord's Supper, in other words, but I subsequently decided to combine them, so retitle the sermon, The Sacraments, So What? And we begin to read at the first verse of chapter 5. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. Uh, As you know, the chapter divisions were added much Uh, uh, later, long after the Bible was written, and they're not always uh, well positioned, and this is uh, a case of that. The first verse belongs in the previous chapter as its concluding statement. Um, The new subject in the chapter begins with verse 2. That fact is more interesting because there is a Hebrew manuscript of the book of Joshua that was found at Qumran, thus much older, um, actually more than a thousand years older than the manuscripts upon which the English translation is based, which you have before you today. And in that Joshua manuscript at Qumran, um, the material that we find in our Bibles at chapter 8, verses 30 to 35, is placed here before verse 2. That material records the ceremony of covenant renewal, instructions for which were given to Israel by the Lord in Deuteronomy 27, 1-13. An altar was to be built, the law copied onto stones, burnt offerings and peace offerings were to be made, and so on. In Deuteronomy, we read that this was to be done when uh, Israel crossed the Jordan, into Canaan. In the established text of Joshua, the one we have, uh, that ceremony did not take place until after the defeat of both Jericho and Ai, but in that text from Qumran, it took place immediately upon the crossing of the Jordan River. There is at least some likelihood that the Qumran text of Joshua preserves the original order, not least because it would make perfect sense for the circumcision of the people and their first Passover to follow the renewal of their covenant with Yahweh. Josephus, in his history of the Jews, also mentions the building of an altar immediately after the crossing of the river. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. Circumcision was practiced widely in the ancient Near Eastern world, but for different reasons, Uh, as a rite of initiation before marriage, as a passage to manhood at the time of puberty, puberty. Only in Israel was it invested with theological significance as a ritual of initiation into the covenant community that Yahweh had created with his promise to be his people's God and the God of their children. I haven't the time to argue the point, but the New Testament makes very clear that Christian baptism 
is the new form of circumcision for the age of the, or the epoch of the Gentile church. Circumcision is defined in Romans 4 by the Apostle Paul as the seal of the righteousness that is by faith, a perfect definition of baptism. And in Colossians 2, he says straight away that if a Gentile Christian had been baptized, he had effectively been circumcised. Both are rituals of covenant initiation, and with few exceptions, what is true of the one is true of the other. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. Um, and Gibeath Haraloth, as you will uh, note in the note of, in your margin, means hill of foreskins. Yuck. <laughs> no wonder a better name is soon found for the place. In fact, before the paragraph is ended, they found another name for the place. Um, And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. The reason why the rite of circumcision had not been observed for some 38 years in Israel was because the generation of Israel that had left uh, Egypt at the Exodus had forfeited the covenant by its unbelief and disobedience, a point made many times in the Bible, as you know. In Numbers 14, 34, after Israel's rebellion and refusal to enter the promised land at Kadesh Barnea, God had sentenced that generation to die in the wilderness and never to enter the promised land. And at that time, he told them, you shall know my displeasure, a way of saying, you shall know what it's like to have me as your enemy, to not be my people. God had explicitly rejected that generation of his people, and the formal demonstration of that rejection was the abeyance or suspension of circumcision the right of initiation into the covenant community. No one after that was able to enter the community of faith, at least in this formal way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. Now the word all is found six times in verses 4 through 8, emphasizing that the unbelieving generation had been thoroughly eradicated and that the new generation had been circumcised in its entirety. There is also a word play in the Hebrew that emphasizes the distinction between these two generations of Israelites. In verse 6 we read that the first generation perished. In verse 8 that the circumcising of the next generation was finished. It is the same Hebrew verb in each case. 
as we're going to learn throughout the Bible, God will be true to his promise to his people that they will inherit the promised land, but that promise never meant that each and every person who at one time or another thought himself or seemed by others to belong to the people of God would so inherit the promised land. Those without faith forfeit the promise. A whole generation might be lost with very few exceptions, but God will raise up another to take uh, their place in his covenant. We don't know who did all this circumcising. There is nowhere in the Bible any indication that it was the work of priests or Levites, as it is the work of rabbis, often in Judaism today, though we don't know that it wasn't the work of priests or Levites. But to say that Joshua did it obviously means only that he saw to it that it was done. Now, that's more important than you might at first realize. Circumcision, even in Joshua's day, was superintended by the church. We're not told how, but somehow circumcision was prevented through the last 30, the previous 38 years in Israel. If circumcision were a family right and fathers circumcised their sons as a matter of course, it's hard to know how the practice could have been effectively suspended throughout the entire nation. But the practice was stopped in Israel and it was begun again. That indicates some external control over the practice. And so it is in the New Testament. Both baptism and the Lord's Supper are rituals of the church. They are superintended by its ministry. They are unavailable even to Christians apart from and outside the authority of the church. I have a dear relative, a firefighter, who told me with some pleasure, that his pastor had thought that it would be touching if he were to baptize his own daughters when they had expressed a desire to be baptized. And my relative thought that was great, being allowed to baptize his own daughters. How cool is that? But that wasn't great, and it wasn't right. Baptism is not a private act. It's not a family act. It's not performed at the initiative of or by the hand of an individual Christian. The Lord has placed the sacraments in his church and has ordered their performance by the church. All of that here. And the Lord said to Joshua today, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Gilgal sounds like the Hebrew verb for to roll. The reproach of Egypt is variously understood, but perhaps for the modern reader, the easiest way to catch the gist is to paraphrase it this way. The Egyptians will no longer be able to tell their Hebrew jokes, jokes about people who escaped Egypt only to wander aimlessly and then die in the desert. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover, on the 14th day of the month, in the evening, on the plains of Jericho. Israel was being scrupulously obedient. According to instructions given by Moses in Exodus 12, verse 6, the Passover lamb was to be killed on the evening of the 14th day of that first month. Passover had been celebrated early on in the wilderness, as we learn in Numbers 9, but whether it had continued to be celebrated after the rebellion at Kadesh Barnea 38 years before, we are not told. 
And we don't think it was because no one was to celebrate the Passover who was not circumcised. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the product of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. So a momentous occasion for Israel as it marked the end of 40 years of wilderness living and eating, relying on manna rather than the produce of the land, the fact that the manna ceased to appear the very day after they had first eaten the product of Canaan, accented the divine provision in each case. He gave them manna because the wilderness did not provide sufficient food. But once he had given them the land, there was no need for manna because there was food sufficient for all. Father in heaven, an important passage, one that speaks directly to our life and worship today. Help us to understand how to take this teaching to heart in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we have before us this morning in their admittedly Old Testament form the two sacraments of the Christian church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Anyone who has been a Christian for any length of time knows very well that these sacraments pose perpetual problems. Almost nothing has divided Christians from one another. Indeed, entire churches from one another more often or more completely than baptism and the Lord's Supper. The Reformation was, in a way, a battle over the purpose, the meaning, and the efficacy of the sacraments, and not just a battle between Catholics and Protestants. The Protestants had their own battles. At Marburg in 1529, the Lutheran and Reformed branches of the Reformation parted company, never to be rejoined over a dispute concerning the Lord's Supper. And the Anabaptists further complicated the early life of Protestantism by their denial that Christian children should be baptized and by some of them insisting that the sacrament was to be performed only by the total immersion of the body under water. As you know, even in our own denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, we are still arguing about baptism and the Lord's Supper. What exactly does baptism do? How often should the Lord's Supper be observed? How should it be observed? Should children participate in it? And so on. We know how to argue about the sacraments, whether or not we always argue intelligently or knowledgeably. And we can become quite heated in our arguments, but it remains a question to what extent any of this really matters to us. In the early years of the 20th century, uh, the great Princeton theologian, Benjamin Warfield, in a letter written to his friend and counterpart in Holland, the theologian Herman Bavink, confessed that most American Presbyterians, uh, in his experience, thought of infant baptism more as an act of parental dedication of a child to God rather than the actual entrance of a child into the membership of the church and the people of God. That is, Presbyterians had one theology of baptism on paper. They had another theology in their mind and heart. And the theology they had in their mind and heart made baptism something considerably less. 
a very influential summary of Reformed theology written in the 19th century, includes this statement. A man who is so strong in faith that he can be joyfully confident of his state of grace can do without the sacraments. Really? Do we believe that? I'd never heard that before. But the more I thought about that remark, the more I realized it was how I grew up thinking about the sacraments. And I think it is exactly the way a great many Christians think about them today. These rituals may have a use, but nothing critical depends upon them. It's faith in our hearts, not water on our heads or bread or wine in our mouth. That's going to tell the tale. Faith in our hearts. The problem of the sacraments, the problem Christians have in understanding what they are and how they work and why they are important, if they are at all important, is made more complicated by the fact that the Bible seems to say seemingly contradictory things about them. In some places, as you know, we're warned not to think that circumcision or Passover, baptism or the Lord's Supper is going to make us right with God. This was a theme of the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, as you remember, and it was a theme picked up again by the Apostle Paul and the writer of the letter to the Hebrews. But in other places, we are taught that these same sacraments are essential to our salvation and to our spiritual life. In fact, we have both of these emphases cheek to jowl in the passage we just read. The generation that left Egypt at the Exodus, the departed from their bondage there on eagles' wings, had both circumcision and the Passover. As Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 10, they were also baptized, as it were, in the waters, the parted waters of the Red Sea. But that baptism, that circumcision, and that Passover did not save them when they rebelled against God. They died in the wilderness and failed to reach the promised land because The sacraments notwithstanding, they lacked true faith in God. The next generation didn't have baptism, circumcision. And for all we know, they didn't have the Passover either. It seems likely they did not. For in order to celebrate the Passover, they would have had to violate a very clear provision of the law of Moses that circumcision must precede the celebration or participation in the Passover. Yet without circumcision or Passover, they had in the power of God defeated two kings on the eastern bank of the Jordan, had taken possession of their lands, and now had crossed the Jordan on dry land. They are by all accounts a faithful and obedient people, the people of Yahweh, careful to do what Yahweh commands. So we have a circumcised people that die unsaved in the desert, And we have an uncircumcised people who stride confidently into the promised land. What could more powerfully illustrate the unimportance of these sacraments than that? However, not so fast. The nation has entered the promised land. The kings of Canaan are cowering in fear. The Israelite army is ready to strike. The enemy is there to be taken. Israel is poised to secure the promised land for herself. Now, surely, is the time to attack. Generals know what a mistake it is not to strike 
when the iron is hot. To give an enemy time to regroup, to recover its morale. But instead of readying for the attack on Jericho, Israel stopped to attend to these rituals of circumcision and Passover. You can easily imagine some Israelite soldier thinking or turning and saying to his friend, you've got to be kidding. We're going to be circumcised now? Who was the, who was the major or the lieutenant colonel who thought this up? It was a very unmilitary thing to do. Circumcision, not so much of a problem for a newborn, is more of an operation on an adult male. After the procedure, it took some days for the man to heal. As we read in verse 8, the army was disabled for some days. If you remember, two sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, wiped out the male population of the town of Shechem, as we read in Genesis, by convincing them to be circumcised. And while they were indisposed and helpless, they cut them down. The men of Jericho might have done the same thing. Obviously, to cripple the fighting strength of an army in the presence of the enemy would never be done unless it were absolutely necessary. Similarly, the celebration of the Passover was likewise an interruption of the military schedule. What better proof could there be that the sacraments are vitally necessary, are essential to the life of God's people, than that Yahweh insisted on their being done at such a time as this. What's perfectly obvious in the narrative is that Israel was not ready yet to take possession of the promised land. She couldn't yet be an instrument of divine vengeance because she was not yet holy. Her spiritual preparation was incomplete. And since what was about to be conducted throughout Canaan was holy war, Israel had to be a holy instrument, and she was not yet so. Her life was still defective in some obvious ways. She was sacramentally unready, and that matters, apparently, and matters a great deal. Whatever we may think, God thinks it essentially important. What seems to be suggested is that Israel was not thoroughly and completely identified with the Lord and with his covenant. The divine mark had not yet been left on her. We're inclined to think that her victories in battle east of the Jordan and her crossing of the river under such miraculous circumstances count for more than circumcision and a sacrificial meal such as the Passover. Apparently, Yahweh doesn't think the way we think about these things. There has been throughout the Christian ages, as you may know, an argument as to whether one is baptized because he is a Christian or one is baptized in order to become a Christian. And the Bible's answer is a decided yes to both of those questions. The church has never thought that baptism is absolutely necessary for salvation. It's never taught that infants who die unbaptized are for that reason unsaved. On the other hand, it never contemplates a Christian remaining unbaptized. So much is this the case that it was a fixed law in the ancient epoch that no one could be considered a member of the covenant community or participate in its life without circumcision. And certain texts in the New Testament say in an unembarrassed way that baptism and salvation go together hand in hand. 
Peter urged his penitent hearers on Pentecost to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. Paul taught in Romans that in baptism we are actually crucified. We die and we rise again with Jesus Christ. And Peter in his first letter artlessly speaks of baptism saving us. Unaware of the controversy he was going to cause. These men were of course perfectly aware that people had been baptized and had been participants in the Lord's Supper who proved not finally to be true believers in Jesus Christ or inheritors of the promised land, yet they continued to speak of the sacraments in ways that emphasize their great power and effect. Whatever else we may conclude from this narrative in Joshua 5, we should begin with this. Circumcision and Passover were essential to Israel's gaining possession of the promised land. That Yahweh ordered them to be observed before Israel took a further step into Canaan is proof of that. And so it has been ever since. A person puts his or her faith in Jesus Christ and very shortly thereafter he or she is baptized. This is sometimes forgotten to be sure, but no one can read the Bible and think that one who aspires to belong to the people of God, to be numbered among the Christians, is free even to delay, much less to deny or decline baptism. And surely no one can read the Bible and think that an authentic Christian life could be lived apart from active and regular participation in the Lord's Supper. And if we still doubt that, take note of the emphasis we find throughout this chapter an emphasis we find elsewhere in the Bible, on the divine initiative in both of these sacraments. It wasn't Israel's idea to stop and circumcise the army. It wasn't Joshua's. A point is made of the fact that all of this was done at Yahweh's command. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel. Yahweh wanted this done. He insisted on it being done. Even though he put his army by this means at risk by incapacitating his soldiers in the face of the enemy. The divine initiative is further emphasized in the long explanation as to why Israel had not been circumcised before this. The Lord had sworn to these Israelites' parents that they would not see the promised land. Part of that punishment was to have their children remain uncircumcised throughout the rest of their lives. But now that previous generation having died, the Lord required the sign of his covenant with Israel to be placed once again on his people. The Lord gave the sacrament to Abraham. He required that it be observed in every succeeding generation. He took it away from one generation on account of its unbelief. He gave it back to this new generation of his people. He told Abraham that circumcision was my covenant in your flesh. And that's what history confirms as we read the rest of the Bible. Circumcision or baptism is the Lord's work. It is the Lord's gift. It is the Lord's covenant sign. It isn't yours. It isn't the church's. It's the Lord's to give. He gives it to whomever he will. He withholds it from others. This fact about circumcision, that it is a divine act and a divine gift and a divine work, 
is dramatically confirmed in verse 9 where we read Yahweh say, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. This is my doing. And the same, of course, could be said of the Passover. It was God's gift to Israel. And so it remains for baptism and the Lord's Supper. American Christians may almost inevitably think of baptism as something they do. Something they do for Christ. Something they do to make public their loyalty to Him. But in fact, while there may be something of that in every baptism, the Scripture teaches us to understand baptism as fundamentally something that Christ does for us, not something we do for Him. This is one of the very important implications of infant baptism, for it is entirely obvious that the infant isn't doing anything. Something is being done to him and for him by another. In instituting baptism for the use of his church, the Lord Jesus said, All authority is given to me. Therefore, go into the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Lord's Supper in this respect is the same. This is my body, which is for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. The Lord, in other words, is supplying the food that we're going to eat in this sacred meal. I've often told you that the problem we have with the sacraments is precisely the problem we face at every other point in our Christian lives. We have to practice them by faith. We have to believe what we cannot see. We're about to come to the Lord's table as we do every Lord's Day. This is a ritual with which we are now very familiar. We do it the same way Sunday by Sunday. We come to the table, we receive first bread, then wine. We eat and we drink. Anyone can observe us doing this. Indeed, we observe one another doing this every Lord's Day. But what else is happening here? Well, Paul says that in the Lord's Supper, believers participate, commune in the body and blood of Christ. That is, in a mysterious and invisible way, we commune with Christ himself in the supper. Christ himself gives us himself in the supper, and we receive him. Precisely how this happens, no one knows or can say. But we've always understood, when thinking rightly, however dimly we have understood this sometimes, that in the Lord's Supper there is not only a recollection on our part, there is a presence, the presence of the Lord Jesus himself. Now suppose for a moment that on this one Lord's Day morning, the 19th of January 2014, we didn't have to live by faith, but we're going to give, we're going to be given a few moments of life by sight. And suppose as we prepared ourselves to come forward to receive the bread and wine, we were to see materializing before our eyes the Lord Christ himself standing behind this table as he materialized in the presence of his disciples that first Easter Sunday evening in the upper room. He wasn't there, then suddenly he was there. We would immediately and intuitively recognize 
who he is. The glory of God would be upon him in some way, true man that he continues to be. Perhaps the seraphim would be hovering above his shoulders. We would be captivated by the sight, moving around before, beside, behind one another, trying to get a clear view, staring intently, trying to capture every feature, thrilled that at last we were seeing the very same man the apostles had seen, the man we had pictured in so many scenes described for us in the four Gospels, the very one upon whom we have relied for the salvation of our lives, whose invisible presence by the Holy Spirit we have counted on through the thick and the thin of life, the very one to whom we have so often prayed, whose praises we have so often sung as we have this morning, whose name we have invoked times without number. There he stands behind the table, before us. Mr. Damas and I would not know what to do. The elders and deacons would stand at the back of the church, pretty sure that this supper was going to be different and that they probably would not be needed at the front. And suppose he then came down and stood in front of the table and with a kind word and a motion of his hand, he invited you forward. Your heart would be pounding, your palms would be sweating, a mixture of excitement, joy, love, thrill, and fear filling your soul. And then finally it's your turn, and you're standing before the Lord Christ himself, face to face, and he's extending his hand and giving you the bread. And as you take it, he says, this is my body. Not this is the body of Christ, as I must say, but this is my body. And then the cup, this is my blood. You want the moment to last forever, but others are coming behind you and it's clear you must move on. Would you ever take the Lord's Supper the same way again? Would you ever forget that moment? What he looked like? What his voice sounded like as he told you, this is my body and this is my blood. The thrill you felt as you took those things from his hand. You might still not be fully able to articulate what the bread and wine did for you or how the Lord's Supper is a participation in his body and blood. But you would have no doubt that something very important had just happened and something extraordinarily precious had just been given to you. Scarcely a greater gift could be imagined or one more necessary to your life. And ever after, you'd never come to the Lord's table without thinking of Him there, serving you the sacred food, the food which, after all, is Himself. You'd realize every Lord's Supper that you are the Lord's man, the Lord's woman, the Lord's boy, the Lord's girl, you'd realize afresh what an extraordinary privilege it is to be so, and what an extraordinary calling you have to love him with all you are and have, and to love others in his name. Do you remember the mystical experience that Thomas Aquinas had in the midst of a Lord's Supper in the Priory Chapel in Naples? He heard Christ Say to him, you have written well of me, Thomas. 
What do you desire as a reward for your labors? And Thomas, godly man that he was, had the wit and the wisdom to say in reply, Lord, only yourself. That's how we're to think of the sacraments. Means by which we receive more of the Lord Jesus himself. By which we hold more firmly to him. By which our lives are more completely oriented to him. Only he can give us himself, obviously. But he promises to do so to all who come to him in faith. That's what the Lord wanted for his children at Gilgal. More of himself. And that's what the wise Israelite wanted from the Lord. More of the Lord himself. And by both circumcision and Passover, they became more completely his. And I hope that's what we are all, ourselves and our children, longing for this morning, to be more completely the Lord's. Amen.